Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 9, The Remnant. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. Find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out 15. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. We ended last week's episode with this description. The course upon which we embark with Cyrus is headed straight for salvation, rescue, primary mission goal, something of most extreme supreme importance. But not a surprise. Not a surprise because we've been here all along and know the numbers of everyone's days, be they Belshazzar's, Babylon's, the exiles, yours, or the days of the current rulers in your habitat. The 70 years exile we had forecast through Jeremiah has been ticking down, but it has not seemed at all that things were moving toward the end of exile. In fact, life has seemed, if anything, to be settling down further and getting even cozier over in exile. Ever since an interim Babylonian king, uh, Amel Marduk, who reigned briefly between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar's dad, Nabonidus, that interim Babylonian king released from prison King Jehoiakim of Judah there as the last entry in king. Uh, this final episode is in 2 Kings 25:27, mirrored in Jeremiah 52:31 as the prophet's final entry as well. A growing feeling of inertia has set in, one of very much getting used to the status quo. This is especially fostered by the comfortable situation there in Babylon as Jehoiakim has a regular ample allowance and a seat of plenty and honor at the king's table. Though these gestures are meant to honor the old king, had things gone unchanged, they could be defined as a killing with kindness. Cyrus is going to change things. We are going to change things. Cyrus is going to play his part. As you might expect, it's also time for us to light up some new talent amongst our children to broker the coming major shift. If you're reading the single-volume Tanakh owner's manual, then the new guy is in the writings section right after Daniel, which makes perfect sense. By the way, we are not done with Daniel yet. He stays in place with the new government of Cyrus and has a couple important developments yet before he's done. If you've got a two-volume owner's manual, the next entry is a book right after Chronicles, which also makes perfect sense, as the narrative with which we have been tracking goes right from the end of the Chronicles King's parallel into the book of our next author, Ezra. He's not a prophet, though you might expect so from the fact that the book bears his name like that of all the prophet's books. He's more like the chronicler, only you get to know his name. His book and its close partner, Nehemiah, they actually were a single work to start with, but were split for greater focus. 
Ezra and Nehemiah are even grouped with Chronicles and Daniel and Esther from a similar time frame in the Tanakh, but they follow after Chronicles in First Testaments as the next entries in the narrative of historical action. It's okay if that was too much to take in in one breath. Here's how the book of Ezra begins. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh spoken by Jeremiah, Yahweh moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. Obviously, this is huge. With his first breath, Cyrus the Great acknowledges that his tremendous political success in amassing his entire empire is all a gift from me. Oh, that government officials from top to bottom in your habitat had the same understanding. Cyrus uses a latent yet classic if-slash-then form, and you thought that had been left behind with high school. If Yahweh has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, then he needs to be worshipped, not to mention that we instruct him so. The next thing out of Cyrus's mouth is our charge and his compliant desire to build, or rather rebuild, our house in Jerusalem, a bit of an if-then cascade. If Yahweh is to be worshipped, then he needs a temple at which to be worshipped. Seemingly out of the blue, the inertia of the status quo is swept away, and Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's and Isaiah's words are on the brink of fulfillment. So keen is Cyrus's humble understanding of us that, in utter contrast to the drunken Belshazzar's arrogant misuse of them, King Cyrus himself brought out the vessels of the house of Yahweh that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. King Cyrus of Persia had them released into the charge of Mithridath the treasurer. That's Ezra 1, 6-8. Cyrus treats with great honor and care our handleables. They are inventoried and placed into the care of one Sheshbazar, a surviving member of the royal family, in order to be transported back to Jerusalem and restored to their intended use. And so it is with Cyrus's blessing, and ours of course, that a sizable group of soon-to-be former exiles begin the 500-mile or so trek back to Jerusalem. The resonance of the Israelites' departure from slavery in Egypt echoes through Ezra's account as all their neighbors aided them with silver vessels, with gold, with goods, with animals, and with valuable gifts, Ezra 1.6.
so they don't end up back in the promised land with nothing to start over with, just as the Egyptians had given these Israelites' ancestors clothing, silver, and gold on the slaves' exit, Exodus 12.35, their exit toward their first move into the promised land. In addition to Sheshbazar, whom Cyrus is going to appoint governor of the repopulated territory, eleven other leaders are listed by Ezra, in Ezra 2, 2. Ezra will not make it over to Jerusalem himself for a few decades yet. Sharp as you are, you already recognize the symbolism of the twelve tribes restored in a reconstituted kingdom with this dozen leaders heading to renew and reinstate the promised land. Jeremiah had indicated a final tally of just under 5,000 people getting torn from their lives in Jerusalem and its environs in order to be exiled in Babylon. They apparently listened to Jeremiah's instructions to multiply in exile. Hear the echo from Eden and Egypt, Jeremiah 29.6, Genesis 1.28, Exodus 1.7. For Ezra counts just under 50,000 souls heading back to Jerusalem, Ezra 2.64. The trip is uneventful and without drama. No forty-year wandering in the desert this time. Whether they're going to live in a neighboring town or in Jerusalem proper, everyone heads to the capital city first, to the temple site, and the head of each family gives in offering as much gold and silver as they can contribute from their own stores and those just given them by the Babylonians, all given toward the reconstruction of our house. Then they see to getting their own house in order for a few months. Then, once again, a simple count to seven signals a fresh start. And when the seventh month hits, renewal begins in earnest, beginning with the primary relational pivot point, our altar. Two leaders are primary in this effort, the priest Joshua and one Zerubbabel, both of whom heading Ezra's list of leaders. As it happens, this Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel, who was embedded in an offspring summary list back at the start of Chronicles as a son of King Jehoiakim. You know, the one carried into exile who was eventually let out of prison to live the remainder of his days in the relative freedom of general exile instead of behind bars. So that fellow's grandson, Zerubbabel, teams up with Joshua, the priest, to make things happen in Jerusalem, at least in terms of getting an altar built. We really have restrained ourselves throughout the entire narrative when it comes to all the information embedded in the simple mention of a name here and there in Tom, in which there are no casual mentions of anything. Catch the cue that one of the line of David is at work in restoring our worship upon return to Jerusalem. They find the altar's original position and erect another on the same foundation stones. The burnt offerings commence that evening and follow on in the mornings and evenings to come. A lone altar does not a temple make, any more than a table makes a house. And so the next step in restoration is the getting of materials. 
all those beautiful cedars of Lebanon that David and Solomon had brought down from Tyre and Sidon and hewn into planks, pillars, and doors had been burned into oblivion. And so it is that another order for cedar is made as Cyrus pays for a fresh shipment to replace everything Nebuchadnezzar had torched. That's in Ezra 3, 6, and 7. Feel free to have a moment for yourself, reflecting on how you may have to rectify a consequence left you by someone from a previous generation. Cyrus literally pays the price for Nebuchadnezzar's burning actions. You may pay the price for your great-grandparents' deeds as well. You certainly are doing so on a larger scale, as your generation deals with the consequences of previous generations' actions in all manner of things. Fluorocarbons, greenhouse gases, resource depletion, for example, to say nothing of genetically modified organisms, artificial intelligence, and other more current forays. It takes some time to get all the materials assembled, and it's not until two years after their return to Jerusalem that the new foundation gets laid. As work begins in earnest on the temple rebuild, it is with great joy and celebration. The musical Levites get out their instruments and sing out praise and thanksgiving for the historic moment as the young people cheer and the oldest ones who can still remember our old house weep. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. Use the link to the very first episode from our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's episode has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way, and until next time, be good to yourself.